if Jesus really did rise from the dead. In Luke 24, we meet two followers of Jesus travelling to the town of Emmaus. Uh, And what we learn from their story uh, is that what it means if Jesus really did rise from the dead, if Easter really happened, is that it'll change your heart. You see, over the course of this chapter, we see these two travellers have their hearts changed before our very eyes. When we meet them on the road, they're downcast and despondent. We read in verse 25 that they're slow of heart. But by the time the events of chapter 24 are drawn to a close, they can say to one another, weren't our hearts burning within us? What happened? How did they move from slow hearts to burning hearts? How did they get from despondency to joy? And how can we get from despondency to joy? How can our hearts be changed in this way? The answer lies in that strange event of the resurrection of the crucified Jesus Christ from the dead. And what we learn here is that if this event really happened, then it will change your heart. But of course, the question is, uh, did it really happen? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Uh, People in the ancient world knew just as well as we modern, advanced, scientifically oriented folk that dead people don't get undead. And yet that's precisely what Luke is determined to tell us actually happened in this history he's written for us. You see, Luke is an historian and he refuses to write down anything, to report anything in his book that he hasn't independently verified against several sources. Uh, He actually lays out his basic methodological framework for us right back at the start of this book where he tells his benefactor that he's decided after investigating everything carefully from the beginning to write an orderly account of the events that have transpired around this Jesus of Nazareth. And here in chapter 24, following the pattern of his book as a whole, he lays out the historical evidence for us. The tomb is empty. The linen cloths used to wrap Jesus' body when he died were still there. So wherever he was, they weren't wrapped around him anymore. And then he appears to a number of his followers. And while he's with them, he takes bread in his hands and breaks it and hands it to them. Naturally, his followers thought they were seeing a ghost. And realising this, Jesus offers them his hands and his feet. Touch and see, he says, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And just to underscore that he's really there, he takes a piece of fish and eats it in front of them. Now, you might remain sceptical, and it certainly took a few goes for Jesus' followers to come to terms with what was happening right in front of them. Uh, Some of them took longer than others. Uh, In John's Gospel, we have the story that you've no doubt heard of Doubting Thomas, that empirically-minded scientist of the disciples who refused to believe unless he could stick his inquisitive little fingers into the wounds that Jesus' crucifixion had left on him. And just as we have recorded here in Luke, uh, so in John, Jesus offers his hands and his feet as well as the wound in his side for Thomas's inspection. Now, Luke, along with Matthew, Mark and John, uh, is an historian, not a scientist, He lays out an historical case for the real, bodily, physical, tangible resurrection of Jesus from death. Uh, No one seems to have thought in the moment of it happening uh, to conduct a scientifically verifiable, repeatable experiment to determine the veracity of this man's claim to be the same Jesus who had died. And even if they had, of course, we don't have him with us right now to take their experiment and repeat it. You see, science deals with the repeatable, but history deals with the unrepeatable. And Luke, the historian, wants to make clear to us 
that what he's found through his thorough investigation of the evidence is that Jesus really and truly was raised from the dead. Uh, to put it in a different vein, uh, in a less evidential vein, in a more experiential vein, uh, John Updike, uh, the American author, uh, poet and critic, uh, expresses this same conviction of, uh, that Luke gives us here in history, this key Christian conviction about the resurrection of Jesus. He does it in poetic form. Uh, here's what he has to say. He writes, Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's disillusion did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes. The same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. You see, we could spend hours laying out the historical evidence for the truth of the claim that Jesus rose from the dead, and I'd be happy to do that with you, to talk further about it, uh, because I'm convinced that there's a very good, solid case to be made. But you see, belief in something so strange isn't just a matter of reason, of weighing evidence and examining our preconceptions. Uh, in some ways, it's more like poetry. It is all of those things. It is uh, putting our, our minds to work to understand the evidence that's there, but it's, in the end, about the heart. That's what Jesus himself says here in this chapter, as his disciples struggle to get their heads around having the, the, dead, the dead Jesus with them again. He says to them, What do doubts arise not in your minds, but in your hearts? And so we need to investigate what it would mean for our hearts, for yours and mine, if this is really true, if Jesus of Nazareth really was crucified and really did rise to new life. And so we're going to have a look at three ways that Easter will change your heart. Firstly, Easter means that the world has a new story. Secondly, Easter means that we have a new vision of God. And thirdly, Easter means that you have a new story too. Firstly, let's think about the new story for the world that Easter brings. Uh, you'll know if you were here last Sunday uh, that I've been reading this book, The Bible in Australia, A Cultural History uh, by Meredith Lake. Uh, Lake is an historian of religion, society and culture in Australia with a PhD from the University of Sydney. Uh, it's a brilliant and compelling book in the first 40 pages that I've read so far, at least, but so far so good. Uh, and in this uh, book, the thesis is that the Bible has gotten under our skin in Australia, that its phrases and ideas pop up at all kinds of important moments in our history and in relation to all kinds of issues that characterise our national life together. And so I want to read you the, the opening few paragraphs uh, of, uh, of Lake's book. Kobe Abbotton emerges like a shark onto the sand at Maroubra Beach. Tattooed from shoulder to shoulder, his body bears letters like teeth, my brother's keeper. The phrase proclaims Abbotton's fierce loyalty to the Bra Boys, the infamous surfer tribe he leads. It defines the us and them mentality he and his Maroubra crew have forged in confrontation with outsiders and in defiance of police. My brother's keeper comes from the Bible. In the book of Genesis, chapter 4, Cain attempts to dodge responsibility for his murdered sibling Abel by asking God, am I my brother's keeper? The question sums up Cain's disregard for his brother's life. 
The Braboys have grabbed the phrase and turned its old meaning upside down. Abaddon's tattoo is suggestive of the Bible's place in 21st century Australia. It floats in fragments across the surface of popular consciousness. There are traces almost everywhere, even in the hypermasculine subculture of a suburban beach. At the same time, its religious elements have sunk into the deep. Its older meanings are readily subverted and reshaped. But even in a truncated form, adrift from theology and even from faith, the Bible can still mark out identities and provide people with a creed. You see, though Australia has become a less and less religious or Christian nation, the influence of ideas from the texts that Jesus' followers hold as sacred remains even in scattered form. Uh, Lake's book goes on to show that in addition to the Bra Boys, uh, uh, biblical phrases and ideas have been formative for the Labor Party as well as the Liberal Party, for union leaders as well as business leaders, for refugee activists as well as the temperance movement, for Indigenous Australians, for honouring those who've died in war and for those who've promoted pacifism. But the Bible's influence remains fragmentary. It provides phrases and concepts in Australian life, but not a coherent and unifying story. And Australia's relationship to the Bible, as uh, Lake describes it in her book, is, I think, not at, at all dissimilar to the problem that these two travellers on the road to Emmaus discover they have. You see, Cleopas and his companion, uh, probably his wife, are beginning the journey home after having travelled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. The remembrance and celebration of the Exodus, the great defining moment of salvation in Israel's history, culminating in God's passing over the homes of the faithful among his people as he brought judgment to the firstborn of the Egyptians, making a way for Israel to be released from slavery. And as these two travelled to and entered Jerusalem in the weeks before the story we've read tonight, they felt like their hearts had been set ablaze with joy and energy and power and hope. They knew their Old Testament. They knew the story of God's promises to Israel and to the world. And they'd heard of a preacher, a prophet, some guy called Jesus of Nazareth, who might just be the one who God had promised, the king who would save Israel and through Israel save the world, who would deal with evil and sin once and for all in a new exodus, who would put everything right at last. But for all their hope, for all their joy, it had all come to nothing. Instead of leading them to victory, instead of driving out the powers of darkness, their last great hope had succumbed to that darkness. Jesus had died. And as they explained to the stranger they meet on the road, our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. The clear implication for them of Jesus' death? He wasn't. He wasn't the one to redeem Israel. He was just another failure, just another pretender, just another fraud, just another disappointment. And so they were in limbo again, unsure how the story would end. And remarkably, the stranger who they meet on the road rebukes them. How foolish you are, he says. And their foolishness consists in having failed to see the coherent story. They know what the prophets had declared about God's promise to save and restore, but they hadn't seen how it all fit together. It remained fragments for them that were not joined up in the right way. And so the stranger on the road puts it together for them, the whole Old Testament from Moses to the prophets. And he summed up the key to the whole, the thread that draws it all together by saying that the Messiah is to suffer 
and to rise from the dead on the third day. There are all kinds of stories in our culture, all kinds of stories about how our world fits together, where our world's headed. Uh, The most prominent one in our culture, I think, is the idea of progress, that we're just slowly, slowly getting better and better. But it doesn't take very long to look around the world and see uh, how inaccurate that is in so many ways. Uh, There are all kinds of areas where we make progress uh, in medicine, uh, in politics, in economics, in peace and justice. And at the same time, all kinds of places where there's some unspeakable injustice. Injustice just as bad as anything the world has ever seen. We have a story that we like to think is coherent, but it falls apart very easily into fragments. And so we have a problem, just like those on the road, that we have fragments of a story that don't hold together. But you see, if the strange event of Easter has really happened, just as Luke reports it here, then the whole story changes. The whole story finds a new centre, a new consistency, a new coherence, because the promised king from God isn't dead, but is alive. And so the world has a new story. This world that we live in, this world that displays such a mix of beauty and terror, of joy and disappointment, of love and evil, This world is destined for renewal, for being remade, for being whole again, for being rid of everything that detracts from life. If the king who God promised to send to bring justice and peace to his world is not dead but lives, then the world's story has become a story of hope again. The fragments have been bound together in Jesus, who's taken all the darkness of our world upon himself in death. And who has overcome death, destroying its power, so that he might rule over our world as its Lord with truth and justice and peace. The stranger on the road says that it was slowness of heart that kept Cleopas and his companion from seeing this new story, from trusting what the prophets had said. Their despair at having their hopes dashed once again blinded them to the glory right in front of them. But the travellers themselves report later in this chapter that it was at this moment, on the road, as this was all explained to them by this stranger, that their hearts began to burn within them. Why? Because if Jesus really has been raised, then God has set this world on course for being made whole again, for being made new, for being transformed. If he's the king who God has promised, the true Lord of the world, then he's the one through whom and by whom all evil will be driven out, all suffering will be brought finally to an end that justice will be done through whom peace will prevail. If he really is alive, then he can really fulfill his mission, his mission that he describes earlier in Luke as being to bring good news to the poor, to release the captives, to give sight to the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the favour of the Lord. And the world could use a lot more of that, couldn't it? If Jesus has been raised, then that is the world's story. There's justice There's peace, there's hope for this broken world of ours. And there's a second way that Easter can change your heart as well. The second way that Easter can change your heart is that through it we get a new vision of God. Eventually the travellers recognise the wise stranger from the road. It's the risen Jesus himself. And the moment when they finally recognise him, notice this, the moment when they finally recognise who he is, is when he breaks bread with them. Now, one thing that all four accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in the Gospels in the New Testament agree on is that Jesus ate a lot. 
uh, Jesus uh, spends a whole bunch of time feasting with people, and often he does it with all the wrong people, not having meals with the upwardly mobile or with the powerful, but with the outcast and the downtrodden. It's got him in trouble with the authorities too, who labelled him a drunken party animal, who uh, labelled him someone despite his teaching and his overall ascetic lifestyle, uh, who couldn't possibly be a man of wisdom and of religious seriousness. And it's in eating with Cleopas and his companion that they recognise who it is who's been travelling with them all along. What does it say about God that the promised king that he sent spent all this time eating? What does it say that the thing that convinced these people that a man had been raised from the dead was that he sat down to eat a meal with them? What does it say that this is a defining characteristic of this person who was sent by God? Now, no doubt the grief that contributed to the slow hearts of our travellers was in part the grief of knowing they'd never enjoy this kind of fellowship with their remarkable teacher and friend again. But if he'd been raised, if he really had risen from the dead, then their fellowship with him could continue. They could eat with him again. They could be near him again. You see, what we see in Jesus breaking bread here with his disciples is that the God who meets us in Jesus isn't distant. He isn't disinterested. He's promised to remake the world into a place of peace and justice. He isn't just a little kind of nudge in the right direction before he steps out of the world again. Instead, he's engaged directly with it. He's engaged with us. He wants to know us, to be known by us. You see, if Jesus really is alive, then you can have real fellowship with him too. If Jesus really has been raised, then you too can draw near to God. You can't uh, share a meal with him now. He's not right here for us to sit down uh, and enjoy uh, some food with. But if your trust is in him, you will share a meal with him in the new creation when he returns to judge the living and the dead, in the great marriage feast of the Lamb, when he returns to finish the world-transforming work that God has begun in him and we feast for all eternity with him. But you can have fellowship with him now as you trust in him, as you receive from him the power that he promises to his disciples at the end of this chapter. God's own personal presence in the form of his spirit to live in your heart, to be closer to you than you've probably ever imagined that God could be, and to change and renew and transform your heart from within. And Jesus has, in his grace and kindness, uh, given us uh, a symbol of this as well, the meal that we're about to share in the Lord's Supper in just a little while. He's given us this meal where we remember his body and his blood in bread and wine, where we take them into ourselves. And that reminds us that even though Jesus isn't physically present with us here now, that that's the kind of intimacy we share with him. That by his spirit, our fellowship is as close as that bread and wine is to us as we digest it. You see, if Jesus really is alive, then you can know him. Not through mere knowledge, not by accruing facts, not through understanding concepts. You can know him personally and intimately as he takes up residence in your heart. And there's a third and final way that Easter will change your heart as well. And that's that if you understand Easter, if you get this, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then you get a new story as well. The major news story of the last week, for better or worse, has been the ball tampering scandal that has engulfed the Australian cricket team. Uh, And what I'm about to say will be just one example of the probably 98% of sermons preached in Australia today that will mention this event. Uh, They were caught cheating. 
There's no two ways about it. They are guilty as hell. And they lied about it. And their lie was uncovered. And three players, including captain and world-beating batsman Steve Smith, have been sacked, have been banned from playing, have been banned from leadership, and have been raked over the coals in the full view of our media and our nation. What do you reckon it feels like to be Steve Smith right about now? What do you reckon it feels like to bear the weight of his failure? If you've seen the press conference that he held on Thursday night when he returned to the country, you'll have some idea of how he might be feeling about all of that. Uh, it's, it's crushing, and it was devastating to watch, actually. As he admitted to his failures and took that guilt on his shoulders, he broke down in tears, especially as he talked about the way that it had affected those around him, those closest to him, how his father and mother have felt about this whole incident in recent weeks. Uh, it was pretty uh, moving to watch, if I'm honest. I may even have shed a little tear myself as I watched him share his grief uh, and uh, do some public penance and repentance. You see, we actually all have big failures in our lives, don't we? We all have things we aren't proud of, things we wish we'd done differently. We all have things that we know are probably wrong, and yet they kind of feel pretty good, and they're kind of effective for us, so we keep doing them anyway. Ways of manipulating others around us, ways of managing our own insecurities, uh, ways of keeping the best for ourselves while we continue to be stingy toward others. We've all got guilt. We all have shame. We all have failures in our lives. And as uh, I reflected with a friend of mine uh, about this whole incident around Steve Smith this week, he said something really interesting. As we were talking, he said, thank goodness my failures haven't been aired in public like Steve Smith's have. Thank goodness I haven't had to go before the cameras and outline my own guilt before the world like he has done. You see, if there's a difference between Steve Smith's failings and ours, yours and mine, it's probably that most of our failings are secret. Occasionally we do stuff up in really big public ways, but most of the time no one sees our failures. They haven't been hung out to dry in public. You might be the only one who actually knows the worst of who you are. Thank goodness my failures are secret. Except, of course, that your failures aren't secret at all. God knows them. And not only that, but your failures aren't even just between you and God. You see, your failures have been hung out to dry in public like Steve Smith's. That's what Good Friday was. You see, Jesus bore all your failures on the cross, all your shame, all your guilt, all your darkness. He took them upon himself and in his body, God displayed them for all the world to see. Your failings, my failings, everyone's failings. The secret things in your life, the dirty little secrets of your grubby little heart, they're all there, hung up on wood and nails before the mocking crowds. God displayed them there publicly for all to see in all of their ugliness. And Jesus took them and Jesus died for them. But it's not Friday anymore. It's Sunday and the risen Jesus is walking the Emmaus Road telling us that the world has a new story and making himself available to us to be known personally. And as the king who God has given to bring peace and justice to his world, he declares a new world order, a new tune to be sung in our world. He says to his disciples, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations. 
repentance and the forgiveness of sins in the name of the risen Jesus. Why in his name? Because he was the one who bore away our failures. He's the one who bore our guilt and shame, our sin, to make forgiveness possible. Because he bore our failures, our failures are his now to forgive. At the cross, our failures crushed him, but they didn't overcome him. He bore them to hell and there he left them as he rose in victory from the grave. And that's good news. Because if our failures had overcome Jesus, if he'd stayed in death under the weight of our guilt, our shame, then they couldn't help but overcome us as well. And yet Jesus overcame your failures so that you don't have to be overcome. And as the one who overcame them, his is the right to forgive them. And he will if you come to him in repentance. If you'll open up your failures to him, if you'll open your heart up to him, if you'll say to him, no longer my way but your way, if you'll let him take your failures and bear them for you, then there is forgiveness in his name. You see, if Jesus is alive, if Easter really happened, then he can offer you repentance and forgiveness. He can offer you a new story, a story not defined by your failures, but defined by his life and death and resurrection. And that'll make your heart burn within you. That'll strengthen you inwardly to keep pressing on through failure and disappointment and despair. That'll generate real joy, real purpose, real perseverance. You can have a new story. A story not of failure, a story of victory in the Lord Jesus as he takes your sins and leaves them behind in the grave. A story shaped through and through by the life of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so what's slowing your heart down this Easter? What's keeping your heart from burning inside you? What failures, what disappointments and dashed hopes what guilt, what shame, what hurts, what jealousies, what envies, perhaps what petty grudges? What's stealing your joy this Easter? Bring them to Jesus. Turn your heart inside out and give it to him. Because if he really rose from the dead, then the world has a new story of justice and peace and hope. If he really rose from the dead, then we have a new vision of a God who calls us into intimate fellowship with himself. If he really rose from the dead, then you can have a new story of love, of life, of hope through his death and resurrection. If Jesus really rose from the dead, then he'll set your heart on fire. Let's pray that he'd do just that for us tonight. Almighty God, you made the world and everything in it. You created this beautiful world we're a part of. You put us in it to care for it to mirror your grace and kindness, your love and justice in this world. And yet we're broken, and so your world is broken too. And yet you promised to send a king, to send a Lord, who would bring justice and peace back to the world, who would heal the wounds that we have in our hearts, who would heal the wounds of this broken world. And in him you took our sins to the grave, and in him you overcame them as he rose to new life. Father, we pour out our hearts to you in thanks and praise tonight for giving us this great gift of the Lord Jesus Christ back to us from the dead. And so we ask tonight that you'd fill our hearts with all joy and peace in believing. 
that you'd strengthen us to confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord and to believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead so that your power by your spirit might be at work in us, so that our hearts might be set on fire and we might serve him with everything we have, with all that we've got, in joy and love and peace till the end of our days in the power of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.